You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Good morning. All right, I've got a cantaloupe and a sledgehammer here. <laughs> we could have everybody move down, please. That'd be uh, just filling these rows here at the bottom. That would be uh, advantageous for you. If you haven't had breakfast. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. We've been uh, talking about the minor prophets. We're in a series called "What's His Name," and we've spent the summer. So far, uh, and we're going to wrap it up in August. We're going to wrap, we're going to go through August and finish this out. Um, we are talking about the minor prophets, uh, guys that we never, uh, probably rarely read the Bible, very, uh, know very little about. Maybe you've heard a verse or two from them. Uh, what's their name? Well, so far we've talked about quite a few of them. We've, uh, taken a look at, uh, Joel, Amos, Jonah last week. I thought it was powerful. We did Hosea and, uh, this week, a prophet named Micah. Now, these prophets are more Duck Dynasty than Jedi. These are long beard country guys uh, who were, weren't really the, the big name prophets, the ones that you hear about, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, those guys. Those guys congregated in larger cities predominantly, and they had interaction with kings and with princes and with local authorities. The minor prophets, they didn't have association with the kings, but they were powerful voices to the people. And they're called minor prophets, not because they're less important, but because they are, uh, real, well, they're smaller. And they didn't play as a major part in, uh, in, uh, in the history of, uh, of the Israelites. So what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking about uh, Micah, he is a guy who's uh, been quoted by Jeremiah, and Jesus himself quoted him. He's actually found in the New Testament quite a few times. He's the favorite of many. He gives 19 prophecies, and every one of them, except for one, has come to pass. And you're going to know which one that is when we get to it. Uh, his, his, uh, it's only seven chapters. Again, most of these minor prophets are smaller books. That's why they're called minor. And... Uh, these, in these seven chapters, it's rich, filled words of metaphors and hyperboles and, a, and apocalyptic language. Now, let me explain that. Metaphors and hyperbole are figures of speech where he uses exaggerated words, exaggerated descriptions, and uh, comparisons to relay a very real and literal event. In apocalyptic language, that style is kind of all through the Old Testament. Jesus often used it, and Revelation is that style. It's a write, it's a style of writing that over-exaggerates uh, descriptive events in order to bring a very real uh, story to truth. For example, we use those sort of uh, hyperbole, uh, large words all the time when we say things like when we played a basketball game and we win and we go, man, we killed them. We slayed them, right? Obviously, you didn't kill them or you would be in prison right now. You didn't slay them or there would be a helicopter flying over your house trying to find you. Uh, those are large words. That's hyperbole. And we find that through the minor prophets where the minor prophets use large words, big descriptions, over-the-top descriptions to describe very literal Events. So we're going to unpack Micah today. Let me tell you a little bit about Micah. Uh, just to kind of give you the backdrop. Here's the, the flow chart uh, back there. You saw it, so you got a chance to look at it. Uh, this is kind of where Micah fits in. As you can see, Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. 
He was actually alive at the same time Isaiah, one of the most important Old Testament prophetic books ever, Isaiah, and a contemporary or someone that was alive during the same time, speaking to the same group of people, was Micah. And a few weeks ago, we talked about Amos. Uh, uh, he was also, that was just coming to the end, and Hosea was also. They were all around at the same time. So this was like the day of prophets. This is big time. You're going to find out, if you notice, right where they are is when the northern kingdom Israel fell apart. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. So here's a little bit about Micah. Uh, as you can tell from this map, I'm going a little history on you today, so settle down. Um, some of you guys are like, history? Oh, uh, here's, yes, thank you. I love history lovers. All right. As you can see, Israel and Judah, it's basically what happened is they were one giant kingdom uh, established by, uh, you know, they went in by Joshua, uh, led out of Egypt by Moses. They, they settled in the land. They became one nation. They eventually asked for a king. They got Saul. Saul wasn't so hot. Uh, they were given David. David was a blessing. And then his son, Solomon, kind of messed it all up and kind of fell away from God for a while. And as a result, it kind of stirred up this kind of civil war within their own kingdom. They split into two halves. The northern took the name Israel. The southern took the name Judah. Israel has 10 tribes. Judah has two tribes. And the largest being Judah. That's why they took that name. And if you look down here over by uh, Gath, Morsheth Gath is a little star. That is where our guy Micah is from. Micah's from a small town. Uh, he was not a country town, but a small town about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. So here's a guy who um, spoke for four decades to over five kings. And uh, so we're talking about 40 to 50 years. This one seven-chapter book is, is spanning over almost 50 years of him speaking. And uh, he spoke to both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Sometimes he had a word to Israel. Sometimes he had a word to Judah. So let's dive in to Micah, Micah 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, he has Amos' passion for justice and Hosea's heart of love and Isaiah's confrontational spirit. He spoke to the people. He says, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Morsheth during the reigns of Jotham, uh, Ahaz, that's a cool name, and Hezekiah. Now, he only mentions three, but actually in his life there were five. Uh, the kings of Judah. He doesn't mention the kings of Israel. Uh, the vision he saw concerning Samaria, that's the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel, and Jerusalem. That's the capital of the southern kingdom, uh, Judah. And then he says, hear you peoples. I like that word, you peoples. I think I'm going to start using it. You peoples, hear you peoples, all you listen. Now, I would call Isaiah the can you hear me now prophet. He's the guy who all the time through his whole prophecy, whenever he gets up to declare, he says, hear me now, or literally listen up, hear me. And he starts off right with verse two. He says, listen, which is the same word, for here, Jesus often began sentences like that. And he says, those who have ears to hear, let him hear. Basically, Jesus would say, listen up if you can listen. This is the way that Micah spoke. Nine times, Micah begins the sentence with listen up. Now, you guys remember the commercials, the Can You Hear Me Now commercials? 
These are the cell phone commercials, and he would be walking around. Can you hear me now? 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 And that's basically Micah. Every few years, Micah would show up and go, can you hear me now? What I said just happened last time, so can you hear me now? Are you listening? You see, here's the idea is if you've ever been a kid and you've, you know, played around in the woods and, and I had this, you know, I used to think and pretend I was like Bigfoot, you know, and I would like these old rotted trees, right? You go, you'd crush these rotted trees. You pick up these branches. Oh, any, am I the only one? All right. Yes. Guys, who's with me? There are any guy, boys. Thank you. Thank you, guys of all age. You'd, and you'd pick up a branch. You'd go, oh, and you'd smash it against the tree. And you'd go, Psh, you know, and you're, oh, you'd be the hawk or Bigfoot. I like Bigfoot because he could run like, like, funny. Do what? You didn't, who'd you pretend to be? Austin with superpowers. Well, there was a, a, a Bigfoot TV show that was very popular when I was a kid that, that that's, I thought he was pretty cool. Um, anyhow, the, here's the idea of those trees, though. A tree that breaks easily has been rotting for years, right? It's not, it's, you're not strong, all right? My, Austin, you're not strong. <laughs> no, you're pretty strong, but not strong enough to break a tree or to smash a branch or to tear out a log, oh, right? It's been rotting for years. And here's the idea. Micah has said, you guys are falling apart. God is going to crush you. Now, he can crush you because he's super strong. But guys, note, you have been rotting for years and the time has come. It's like, it's like he says, you're living below sea level and you built your house in a fault line. And it's just a matter of time before everything comes crumbling down. Can you hear me now? This is what he's saying every few verses. So this is the challenge that Micah has given them. He says, you guys aren't listening. You're rotting, you're crumbling. You've built your house on a place of destruction because of the way you live. And now I have three messages for you. Micah is broken into three messages. And again, it spans over about 40 to 50 years. So uh, here's a quick overview. And then we're gonna unpack what they mean for us today. So uh, first of all, um, the first one, and by the way, I have this sledgehammer here, and uh, and this is what he's saying. He's saying the hammer is coming. Now, I'm not going to smash it because my Bible's on the table, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to smash it. But I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying I'm going to smash it either. Um, I may just whack it that direction, like a base, like a t-ball. Now, um, Peter Gabriel's sledgehammer. All right. Um, anybody know that song? I played it for my daughter yesterday just so that she could know because every time I say sledgehammer, I want to I wanna say it like that. I want to be your sledgehammer. Um, basically, this is the whole concept of Micah. Micah is saying the sledgehammer is coming down. The hammer is coming down. And the first message that he gives in Micah is this. The hammer is coming down on the world. Check this out. He begins with verse 2. He says, the hammer is coming down on the world. Here, you peoples, all of you, listen, earth, all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord, that means God who is in control of everything, may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. He says, look, he says, open your eyes. He says, the Lord is coming 
from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression. Jacob is another word for both nations, north and south, together, because they are the descendants of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons went on to become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So whenever you see the word Jacob, he's referring to both the northern and the southern kingdom. And Jacob had a wrestling encounter with God himself. And when he walked away, God put a limp on him. I tell you, once you wrestle with God, you never walk the same. But God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And that's why they're called the children of Israel. That's why they're called the people of Israel, because that's Jacob's name. So when he says, because of Jacob's transgression, he's talking about the United Kingdoms together, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? That's the northern capital. Was it Judah's high place? That's the southern capital. Is it not Jerusalem? I'm starting with Israel and Judah. He says, he says, the hammer is coming down on the world, but I'm starting with Israel. I'm starting with Judah. I'm starting with them because I have called them to a special purpose and they've defiled themselves in their relationship with me. So it goes on to say, therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble. And then he goes on to describe how the city of Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel will be attacked by the north and that they will be wiped out and their cities will be turned to dust and rubble and ashes and there will be mourning and weeping. They'll be crying out to God. Now, this actually happened in Micah's lifetime. In Micah's lifetime, just a few years later, They were attacked. Now, I've got some actual artifact pictures here. They were attacked by the nation of Assyria. And Assyria came in from the north and conquered and wiped out the entire nation of Israel. Took every single person as a captive, led them out of their nation, and dispersed them among their known world. And then he replaced them in their area with what were considered internationals or Gentiles or people from other nations. That was how Assyria controlled their own kingdom is that they would displace people and then they would put other people in their place in order to disrupt culture and bring alliance upon the nation that they were in control of. So Assyria came in, wiped out Israel and check this out. We never hear from those 10 tribes ever again in the entire Bible. They're what's known as the lost tribes of Israel. Maybe you've heard of the 10 lost tribes of Israel, whether that's a real deal or not. The Bible does not talk about them anymore. Most of them were dispersed throughout the world. A large number of them were taken as captives. And here's the funny part of Assyria. Guess what Assyria's capital city was? Nineveh, the very same city that a few generations earlier, Jonah went and preached the gospel to Nineveh. Remember, he preached the good news and they turned to God. Well, years later, they turned away from God. And these were the same people that came and destroyed Israel. Ironic, is that? So a lot of these people, the Israelites who hated Assyria and especially the city of Nineveh, many of them ended up being residents of Nineveh 
of Nineveh, and we never heard from them again. As also fulfillment of this prophecy in chapter 1, Assyria invaded Judah as well, wiped out major cities, but they decided to let the inhabitants live there, and they did not destroy Jerusalem. Pretty amazing. As you can tell by this picture, the Assyrians were quite violent. This is them impaling them. They would go in and they would, if they submitted, then uh, they would be taken off uh, to another nation. If they did not, then they were usually beheaded or their eyes were poked out or their chains were put on their faces and they were dragged through the streets by chains on their faces. There's actually pictures on stone walls of the Israelites being drugged uh, through the streets with chains in their faces. Quite interesting. So uh, this is a, a vicious vile part of Israel's history, and we never heard of Israel again. So the hammer is coming down on the world. I'm starting with Israel, but God gives a second prophecy in that section, and he says, but they will be restored. In Micah 2, he promises that there is going to be one. There's going to be a Messiah. There's going to be one who will set them free. We're going to talk about who that one is in a minute. So years later, After Israel was defeated, Micah speaks again, this time to Judah, because Judah hadn't changed their ways. A time when the people and the leaders were going their own direction. This is the second thing. The hammer comes down. This is the second message. This is chapters 3 through 5. The hammer is coming down on the leaders, on false leaders. This is a time when the leaders, the government, the politicians, the priests, the pastors, the preachers, the people who were in charge of their own household, the leaders were going berserko for their own selfishness. This is what he says in Micah 3, 1. He says, then I said, listen, can you hear me now? Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, who... This next description, again, Isaiah uses, uh, Micah, sorry, uses some elaborate descriptions. This is graphic. He says, uh, he says, you who hate uh, good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, break their bones in pieces, and chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. That's Wow, heavy imagery right there. He says, man, you're, you're leaders. He says, you're acting like cannibals. You're just devouring people. You're using them and manipulating them and draining the life right out of them. And this is quite heavy descriptions. He says, you're chewing on them with your perverted power. False leaders and false preachers who misuse authority for their own selfish game. Micah says, man, the hammer's coming down on you. It's going to smash you. There's going to be nothing left of you. Fulfilled in his lifetime, like I said, Assyria had come down and invaded them, wiped out all their major cities, and Assyria actually became the dominant empire power in Judah. So though Jerusalem was not destroyed at this time, and Judah and its inhabitants were kept there, all of its leadership was wiped out. You can tell by this graphic here. There's some pictures here. Um, They were wiped out by Assyria, and uh, they were eventually 125 years later after this event, uh, Assyria actually displaced every single person in Judah and took them as captives. Many of them, uh, that's where we get the story of Daniel and Radchak, Meshach, and Abednego, and some of the minor prophets, the kingdoms divided. They're actually speaking to the people who were as captives and slaves in in, uh, 
Assyria, Persia, and Babylon. So they came in, wiped them out. Eventually, uh, Babylon took them away as well. But the next verse is interesting. Does God answer the prayers of every person? Here's a question. Does God answer the prayers of every person? Absolutely not. He doesn't. Are prayers always listened to by God? No, they're not. Uh, Here's why some prayers are not. The very next verse, he says, they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. See, they do actually what a lot of us do, and that is we compartmentalize uh, compartmentalize our lives. We say, well, this is the spiritual Ted, and this is the, uh, the, the workplace Ted, and then this is my home Ted. And then we like, oh, it's Sunday. Uh, hopefully I can make it to church so I can be the spiritual Ted, right? And what we do is we come in on Sundays, we, we raise our hands, we clap, we, man, we're there, but then we go to work on Monday, and we're, man, nobody even knows that, that Jesus is king of our life, because maybe he's not, but uh, we, we got the, the show on, uh, but with, then we've got the, uh, the, the life of uh, how we are with our friends, how we are on Friday night, how we are at work or after work, and then we've got, you know, our, our family thinks we're another way, you know, we're, we're kind of nice, we're cool, they think we're good people, they, you know, they know that we're, we're maybe not perfect, but, they, you know, we got all these different compartmental lives, and, and, we're, and then we want to cry out to God when times get tough, and we, God, where are you? I feel like I can't hear you. And, and we do exactly the same thing that they do. We compartmentalize our lives. And when we live two lives and we wonder where God is, God will not answer. So the hammer is coming down on false leaders. But he says the people will be restored. And so we get this beautiful picture, Micah 5, of the promised one, a Messiah, who will come and set them free. Who is this one? We're going to meet him here in a minute. And then the third section is this. In a... Micah 6 through 7, he says, listen, because now the gavel is coming down on my people. And when I say the gavel, I'm talking about what God does here is interesting. He sets up through the voice of Micah a court, a picture of this judge, and he uses creation as a type of jury. He says the mountains, the stars, the sky, all of creation can testify of my goodness and how you have mistreated me. He says this in Micah 6, 1. Again, this is years later after the last one. He says, again, listen up to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So God goes on to ask, he says, what have I ever done except love you? He says, what have I ever done except provide for you and lead you into safety? Why is it that you turn your face from me and deny me and mistreat me when everything you have that is good has come from me? He says, creation can testify that you are guilty. And the gavel comes down and he says, and because you are guilty, I'm going to take you out. He says, you've forgotten your salvation. You've forgotten your freedom in me. And in place, you begin to exploit people and you bring violence. So the gavel's coming down on my people. But he says something in the latter part. He says, however, my kingdom 
will be restored. And in Micah 7, we get this amazing picture of this time when the one, there is a Messiah who will come and establish an eternal kingdom. Powerful pictures. So that's Micah in a nutshell. What does it mean for us? By the way, those events happened except for the last days, which we're going to take a look at. What's Micah's message to us? Four things that Micah is speaking to us today that we can take home and we can use today. The first one is this. I want you to know this. By the way, when I was a youth pastor, here, let me, I better move this over here. When I was a youth pastor, I uh, used to do really dumb stuff and um, uh, just to get a message across. And, and I remember Gallagher. I mean, I heard somebody yell that. Gallagher was a character from the uh, 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 late 80s, early 90s who basically made a living smashing stuff. And he was a bit of a comedian, but he had this bit where he broke stuff, and then all of a sudden that became his thing. So I was a youth pastor in that time, so there was like this, like almost a six-month period where I smashed something every week. I smashed watermelons, cantaloupes like the one you see here. Uh, I smashed TVs and VCRs and and, uh, things that didn't fly into the crowd and things that did fly into the crowd, and it became a quite fun and interesting and dirty and messy, but I've got this cantaloupe here because I want to illustrate how the hammer, how the gavel, how the sledgehammer is coming down on on us. Are you ready? Going to go. Just kidding. I'm not going to do it. I, I can't do it. I'm, my wife is like, do not. Uh, I'm really not. I actually wasn't going to. I just thought it scare some of you. Some of you are like, church just got good for like three minutes. Wake me up. I'm going back to sleep. All right, here's what Micah speaks to us about the sledgehammer and the cantaloupe. Number one is this. God despises lying and manipulative people. The hammer is coming down on you. This is interesting. We have other verses there in your notes you can take a look at. Uh, Micah unwraps false politicians, uh, false pastors, prophets, teachers, and leaders. This is what he says in Micah 2.6. He says, do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy that these things, disgrace, uh, disgrace will not overtake us. Your descendants of Jacob should be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he... Do such thing? Does not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? He says, he says, the people are telling the people and the prophets are telling the other prophets, do not prophesy doom in the hammer. Do not prophesy about the sledgehammer. Do not prophesy that things are coming down because God is patient with us. He's going to hold out. We're, we're the children of Israel. We're God's people. God's not going to do anything to us. So the prophets began to tell the other prophets to only preach good news, only speak positive things, that God is love. God would never do that. Just tell me something helpful and then send me home. And, you know, we have churches that do the exact same thing today. They don't preach God's word. They don't preach the truth. They don't expose the reality of a person who needs to turn from their issues and turn to the issue solver to turn from their sin and turn to the forgiver. We have churches that are blind to this whole idea of the sledgehammer and they give you an encouraging, helpful, handy, tipful message for you to go home and try to apply at work this week. That's just kind of a nice but non 
life-threatening, life-changing message. It's what the prophets were saying. Don't give us anything heavy. Just give us something nice. In verse 8 through 10, he says, You take and misuse the defenseless for your own gain. You lie and you take their possessions for yourself. Micah 2, 11, he says, If a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, well, that would be just the prophet for his people. He says, all you want to hear is blessing and good times. He said, man, if you, if a guy comes in and says, hey, man, everything's going to be cool. Man, we're going to have lots of wine. We're going to have lots of friends. It's going to be good times and parties. That's the prophet you want to invite into your town. That's the guest speaker you want to have. The preacher said what the people wanted to hear instead of what God wanted said. Micah 3, 5, he goes on. He says, this is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace. If they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Basically, these prophets would go into towns. They would walk through and they would speak this word of peace and goodness and joy and love. All this stuff that when God was trying to get their attention and, and he would say, all right, now I want a meal. And if somebody didn't give him a meal, they would curse them and wage war, spiritual war on that person and tell the other people of that town to mistreat them because they were not wealthy enough or or well-off enough to provide finances to the prophet or food to the prophet, then the prophet would then condemn them and, and, and wage war on them. He says, her leaders judge for a bribe. He says, her priests teach for a price. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. Still happens today. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Zion is, means uh, Israel. It means the temple. It means the holy places of God. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple uh, will, hill will be a mound overgrown with thickets. Because of this, the sledgehammer is coming. So God despises lying and manipulative leaders. Here's another thing that's for us today is that God is disgusted by, compl- by the complacent and the idle. God is appalled by our inactive response to injustice. A large part of Micah is, is the charge against their complacency towards the poor and the hurting. We see in one of the most powerful passages of Micah, in Micah 6, beginning with verse 6, he says, with what shall I come before the Lord? And how will I bow down before the exalted God? He says, all right, guys, we're going to gather before the Lord. He says, and we must ask ourselves, what is it that the Lord would want us to bring? What is it that God requires from us? It's kind of a rhetorical question. God, just what do you want from me? The God who owns everything, is there really anything that I can bring you? He says this, he says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves, a year old, they used to sacrifice animals. They would basically, they wouldn't just like kill them and bleed them out. They would actually uh, have these barbecues in honor of God. They, Whenever you see 
the lamb and the, the goats and the bulls and all these animals in the Old Testament that were sacrificed before the Lord, they didn't just kill them and say, God, you're scary, here's a sacrifice. They would actually offer them to the Lord as an innocent sacrifice, and then they would have a giant barbecue, and they would partake of it all as a symbol of the Lord's forgiveness and grace. So it wasn't just this slaughterhouse idea where they were just going in and killing animals. So he says, should I bring to you uh, calves a year old? That means he's pure, innocent, perfect animals. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of olive oil? He says, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions? He says, God, even if I were to give you all the best animals, everything I have, the most richest of oils, God, Could I even bring to you my son, my daughter? God, here's my kids. He says this. He says, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. God, if I were to even give my own child for you, is that what you would want? If I could give you everything, God, it's still not enough. He says, says, you know, we know how to sing. We know how to drop a bill in the bucket. We know how to make some noise. And some of you might... Know about your Bible. He says, you missed the point. He says this, Micah 6, 8. He says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. Simple, he says. And what does the Lord require of you? What does God want from you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. He says, you want to know what I want from you? You want to know what I've been asking of you your entire life? You want to know all that I require from you as a human being to the holy God of all creation? He says, you want to know? It's very simple. It's not complicated. It's very simple. Three things I want from you. Three things. I want you to do justice. He says, that means to use our influence in a fair and just way towards others. We see this when Jesus says the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and strength, uh, mind, strength, and soul. He says, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, man, when you love others, he says, man, when you are out there using your influence, when you are caring for someone as much as you care for yourself, you're walking in my steps. He says, number two, I want you to love mercy. He says, I want you to be a loving person, especially to those hard to love. Show grace, give patience, and be loving the way that you receive love from me. And then he says, number three, I want you to walk humbly with your God. Not just be a humble person, but to walk humbly with your God. That means to have a proper view of yourself before God. That means to say, God, you are awesome and mighty and holy, and I am not. It's God knowing that I am sinful and you are righteous, so I need I need grace. I need forgiveness if I'm going to be in relationship with you. It's knowing that God is ever before me. It's it's keeping God in his place. Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. His righteousness means God. Humble yourself before the Lord. He says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things. All those things you worry about, life, job, finances, money, family, friends, whatever. He says, all the other, other things. They'll be taken care of. They'll be added unto you. If you will walk humbly with your God. And this changes the way we walk completely with others when we begin to walk humbly before the Lord. We get quiet in our quiet times. Maybe you've done this before. 
you uh, been a Christian for very long. If you're not, then uh, this is kind of comical. But Christians, we we get our quiet time. Get our cup of coffee. Whatever you do, we get our Bible. Get on our patio or something. We're quiet. We're sipping our coffee. The coolness of the morning. Birds chirping. Reading your Bible and God, what do you want? One second, let me turn up, up my iPod. God, if it's like God looks down and says, oh, Nick, it's your coffee, it's your music, nice patio furniture. You're sitting on a little blankie. You know what God says? He says, really? Millions are wondering they're gonna, if they're going to live through the day. Kids, right now, there's a child that dies every three seconds. Every three seconds from hunger and malnutrition. We have mothers who are at this moment crying, holding their children as they're breathing their last breath. We have men who are on the streets, wasted, burnt out in their brain and addicted to drugs and can't get their life back together. And you want to know what I have for your life? What do you think I want from you? I've made it clear. I've made it very clear what I care about. I have not been kind of, uh, you know, ambiguous or vague, or I haven't been somewhat distant about what I think is important and what I think I value and what you should be about. We say, God, what do you want for my life? And he says, what do you think I want? I want you to do justice. I want you to love mercy. And I want you to give that mercy. I want you to do the right thing. And I want you to walk humbly with me. And I want you to do something to reach these people, to reach these lives. You want to know why the prophets were so angry all the time in the Old Testament? Because they were complacent. They didn't care about the suffering. They didn't care about the poor. They didn't care about the hurting. And so God says the sledgehammer is coming down. And, and they use the strongest language possible. They use the richest metaphors, the largest descriptions that were to the extreme of almost absurdity to describe God's rage and anger against the complacency and idleness of his own people. Well, what about all the sexual sins that, that people have? God hates that too, right? Yes, he does. But, but God says more about the complacency of the righteous than the evil sins of the world. You realize that, right? The word of God, the prophets were speaking to those that supposedly claimed to be in righteous relationship with God. The majority of the New Testament was written to a church, was written to Christians who supposedly had a relationship with God. And they were a challenge to the followers of God, to Christians to wake up 
because the hammer's coming because God is disgusted with our complacency and our idleness. Here's an example. When you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think of? A lot of people think, well, homosexuality, right? Their, their pervertedness, their weirdness. Where they, what was the sin? God said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And we think, well, their sin was their sexual sin. Probably some of that, but this is what Ezekiel says in 1649. He says, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She was arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. That's what Ezekiel says God's charge against Sodom was. And we miss the whole thing. We miss the whole picture. You want to know what ticks God off? Complacency and idleness against injustice and the poor. One of the scariest verses in the entire New Testament is Matthew 25. It's a parable that Jesus gives. He says, there's going to be a day when I will stand before the world and judge the sheep from the goats. And I will separate the sheep from the goats. And the the goats will be cast away from me into everlasting fire into everlasting punishment, not into a deep sleep where you just cease to exist. But Jesus said in Matthew 25 that they'll go into an eternal punishment. And he says this, the people said, well, why? Why would they go into eternal punishment? And Jesus said, you want to know why? He says, because I was hungry and you did not feed me because I was thirsty and you did not give me something to drink. I was homeless and you did not give me a place to stay. I was naked and you did not give me clothes. He said, I was sick and you did not tend to me. I was in prison and you did not come and visit me and you did nothing. And they said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Jesus. When did we ever do that to you? And Jesus says, look around. When you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. And when you don't do it to the least of these, you've not done it to me. So he says, depart from me into eternal judgment. Wow. In Luke 16, maybe you've heard the story of Lazarus, uh, not the Lazarus who died and Jesus rose from the grave, but there's another parable that Jesus gives about hell. And there was a rich ruler whose name was Lazarus. And in this parable in Luke 16, Lazarus is in hell and he's crying out, just, just, just one tiny, just dip your finger in water and put one tiny drop of water on my tongue. Just, just one little drop. Please, it's so hot here. The judgment is so painful. Help, let me reach my family to tell them that they don't want to come here, to turn from their ways, to be different, to follow the Lord. And we miss the big picture of this parable of Lazarus in Luke 16. Here's the picture. This was a rich ruler who was complacent. And as we read the parable, did nothing to help the poor. And in heaven was the poor who were humble before the Lord. See, this is a picture about our complacency, even in that picture. 1 John 3, 16 and 17 says, if you see a person in need and you don't help, how can you really even be a Christian? How can you call yourself a follower of God? Christ laid down his life for us. Now we are to do it for others. I want you to take a look at these pictures for a minute. I've got a few of them. What comes to mind when you see these pictures? Immediately, some of you want to turn away. You want to cover your face. You want to pretend that these people don't exist. Chances are, Every person in this picture, chances are many of them are probably dead. Here's another one. 
We look at these pictures and we go, I'd rather not talk about it. Let's go to the next one. This is uh, this family here. That's South Texas. There are families in our own nation. This is these are food lines in Detroit. This is a homeless man. This is uh, your typical city. We we look at the homeless. Don't give anything to them. They're just going to go buy drugs or buy alcohol. God says, how can you drive by and not do something? John says in 1 John, he says, if you see someone who's hurting and in need and poor and you do nothing, how can you call yourself a Christian? Is the spirit of God even in you? Here's another picture. This is a Pulitzer Prize winning photograph. This was taken in, I believe, 1993. This is a refugee, Rwandan refugee, trying to get to food at a refugee camp. He was, this is a little boy, he was actually crawling across his country. And in the distance is a vulture following him, ready to eat him because this child is seconds away from death. The guy who took this picture was told very clearly, you are not to interact with your environment. Just take the pictures and come back. He took this picture, has no idea if this child ever made it, but it haunted him and haunted him. He actually came back and he won a Pulitzer Prize for this picture. Three years later, he committed suicide. When you... Turn your face from the sick and poor and needy. You're truly a sick, poor and needy person inside. Micah reveals that. James chapter 2 even tells us that feeling bad for them is not enough. The true faith is faith in action. We're to bring change. So Micah says that God is disgusted by our complacency and idleness. Third thing that Micah says this, he says, Micah also reminds us that we are unable to save ourselves. Micah lays out this picture and the scriptures are very clear that we are helpless and we're all guilty. Micah lays out this image that every one of us, every person that breathes air on this planet, from the child to the adult, every one of us, we are helpless, we are sinful, and we are predisposed, predetermined, we are pre-inclined, we are pre-bent towards evil and deceptive and depraved behavior. And he says very clearly, he says, you cannot help yourself. He lays out this image that you deprive the poor, you use your power for selfishness, you are complacent and idle, and, and you, you think that you're righteous, and you go and do your religious services, but you're void and empty inside, and guess what? You can't do anything about it. There's nothing you can do to change your situation. He says you are completely helpless in this. Basically, he says, we all have a sin problem and we are unable to do anything to fix it. And we can't blame God and we can't blame our government and we can't blame our neighborhood and we can't blame our family for the way we were brought up. You are who you are and you're guilty and you're helpless. This is what he says in Micah 7, 5. He says, he even goes so far as to say this, and I want to explain this. He says, do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. That means he says, don't expect that your friend's going to save you. 
Don't expect that uh, your neighbor has the answers of life-giving assurance for you. He says, even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of her words. He says, man, if you've got a girlfriend, she's not the answer. If you've got a husband or wife, guess what? They're not the answer. He goes on to say, for a son dishonors his father and a daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He says, having children isn't going to fix the hole in your heart. Having a family is not going to fix the problem of sin in your life. He says this, a man's enemies are the members of his own household. He says, our friends, our family, this world, they will let us down. They are not the savior. He says, but as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my savior, my God will hear me. Micah's challenge is don't trust in your life and your family, your friends, your possessions or people or your environment or your prestige or your background or your position or, or whatever. He says, trust in the Lord God. He's your only savior. He's your only hope. Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, not even one. Paul says it again in Romans 3:23, all of us have sinned. That means we've all missed the mark and we've all fallen short. Ecclesiastes 7:20 says there is no one on this earth that is even righteous. And and a day will come when the hammer is coming. Remember that first prophecy from Micah is that the entire world is guilty and that the hammer is coming down on the guilty. It's called judgment day. Micah 7:16 says Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will lay their hands on their mouth and their ears will become deaf and they will look dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground and they will come trembling out of their dens and they will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. And you think, well, why can't God just simply just erase sin? Why can't God says, all right, you've suffered enough. You are forgiven. Why can't God just go, all right, uh, you're right. It was a little harsh. Hell's a little bad. I'm sorry, all of you that are in there. Come on out now. Why is it that God can't just kind of wink at our sin and overlook some of our sinfulness? I'll tell you why. He's holy. He is perfect. He is righteous in every way. There is no wickedness or evil in him. And sin and wickedness in his presence is destroyed he's called a consuming fire and he can't deny himself and he is just sin will always bring justice judgment will always be satisfied someone will pay for what you have done someone will pay what your neighbor has done someone will pay what this world has brought to us and god says the hammer is coming down on the guilty But good news, there is a wrath satisfier. His name is Jesus. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love. Not that God, uh, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation is one of the most powerful words in the New Testament. It means wrath satisfier. It means sacrificial When God says, oh, somebody will pay for your sins. You have an option. You can pay for your sin. 
to be in eternal judgment. Or you can know Jesus who has paid for your sins and know eternal life. Here's the last thing that Micah teaches us, and that is the only hope of the world rests in the Messiah. Micah is one of the richest books when it comes to talking about Jesus. Each prophecy of judgment, he says, there is one who will restore. There is one who will redeem. There is one who will return and set us free. That one is the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. The word Christ means Messiah. He is Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Christ. After each judgment, he says there is one. And Micah is telling us that the Messiah is coming. And guess what? 700 years after Micah, Jesus walked onto the scene. Here's Jesus and Micah. Jesus is the one who tears down walls and makes a way. And Micah 2.2, 2, he says, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob, and I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel, and I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like flock in its pasture and place, uh, and the place will throng with people. Verse 13, the one who breaks open the way will go up before them and they break through the gate and go out. The king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. John 10, 9 and John 14, 6 tells us that Jesus is the way maker. Jesus is the one who breaks forth the way, who tears down the walls, who kicks open the gates. He's the one who lets loose the floodgates of redemption. Jesus is the one, the way maker. In Micah 4.1, it says that Jesus is the latter day returning king. He says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and the people will stream into it. Many nations will come and say, come, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. And he, the Messiah, will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. Luke 1, 30, verse 30 to 33, the prophet comes to Mary and says, Jesus is that king that was promised. He is the descendant of Jacob who's come to gather the nations to himself. He is the redeemer. He is the coming, the returning king. Micah 5, 2, Jesus is the God who's come to earth. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, by the way, that means the region of Bethlehem. He says, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel. That passage right there is quoted in the New Testament by scribes. You might remember when Jesus was born, they were trying to find Jesus because they wanted to kill him because Herod was worried that he was going to be losing his throne. Well, here's what happened. They went to the scrolls of Micah. They wanted to know where the king would be born, and Micah says it's going to be Bethlehem. That's why Herod said, go kill every kid in Bethlehem under the age of two, because Micah says the Messiah would be born there whose origins are from old, from ancient times. That means this is not an ordinary man. This is a man who is eternal. This is an everlasting God, the ancient one. Therefore, Israel be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. That's Mary. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. That means the rest of uh, the Israeli people and his disciples. He, the Messiah, will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord as God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. 
The entire New Testament tells us that Jesus is God everlasting, the ancient one come to us to rescue us. Micah 7.14, in that verse we just talked about, says that Jesus is the good shepherd. Verse 14 says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. John 10 tells us that Jesus is that great and good shepherd. The last verse in Micah I want to read is about Jesus, the compassionate forgiver. He says, who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Let me tell you something. The sledgehammer is real, but God is quick to forgive. Yesterday, I was watching a program called Kitchen Crashers. Ever watch that show? Basically, they, they meet strangers in like Lowe's and Home Depot, and they say, hey, can we go in and redo your kitchen? It's a pretty fun show. They try to ask people who's got like the worst kitchen, you know, like these old outdated kitchens, and they go in with sledgehammers. And you see them, they're like, boom, tearing down the cabinets, boom, tearing down. I mean, they're like, boom, through the oven, boom, right? And they're tearing down walls, and they're kicking down cabinets and banging out the sink, and... On the end of day one, it looks like a disaster site, right? I mean, they have to wipe out. They're not leaving a cabinet. They're not, they're not leaving a, a, an appliance. Everything's got to go. Some of the walls are going. I mean, they're crashing and trashing. They're turning the whole place to ashes. They are coming through with a sledgehammer, and everything's going down. But that's not where the show ends. The show ends with a great remodel from a designer who knows what they're doing. We have a Lord who cares for you, loves you. Sledgehammer's already come for some of you. Your life is a wreck. Your life is in ashes. Your life, you feel crashed. There's some good news for you. There's a designer who's not done with you yet. Sledgehammers was just part of the problem, fixing you. Now he wants to fix you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to put your life in the design why he created you. Ephesians 1.17 says this, In him, Jesus, we have redemption. It's liberation. Through his blood, forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. I'm going to ask the band to come on down. Micah gives us this great, great picture. And it is this. You can rise from the ashes of your past and rubble with Jesus. That's the message of Micah, that the hammer is coming, but in the rubble, in the ashes of destruction, the Lord rebuilds, restores the Messiah. And we now know him. His name is Jesus. John Newton, he says, I'm a great sinner, but Christ, he is a great savior. So I want us to pray right now, and I want to give you a chance to call out to this great designer, this savior, the one who can fix and redeem and forgive your life. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you love us, you care for us. God, you didn't leave us. 
God, and I pray that you would speak to us this morning. God, if there's anyone here who's, who feels like they're in the rubble of their life and they're in the ashes of their life, God, I pray that they would know the great designer, the Messiah, the one who's the way maker that Micah prophesied and that we can know. God, thank you for your grace and mercy for us today. If you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I need his mercy, I need his grace, will you just take some time this morning before we go just to talk to God, just say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Thank you that you weren't finished with me. And he will take you. He will turn into you, turn you into something beautiful. God, thank you for your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name. We're gonna, I'm gonna ask the ushers to come forward at this time. We're gonna take up our offering. Just want to say this one last thing about Micah. Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. It literally means who is like our God. Do you realize who he is? In Micah's time, they failed to hear the hammer. Are you going to fail to hear as well? So as, uh, as we end our service, I just want you to take some time just to talk to God, just to talk to the Lord and say, God, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that needs you. And spend some time talking to him. He will hear your prayer. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.